Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to John 14, verse 7, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read from 4, or from verse 7 through 11. This is the Word of the Lord, it is eternally true. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Your word, thank you that we can have knowledge of you by your word, that we can come to know exactly who you are, that we can see Jesus, Father, that the Holy Spirit can illumine our minds, and we thank you for this power. We pray that it would be active in us and you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations. May they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. This week we turn to another question from a different disciple. You remember that in the last chapter and this one, all set in the upper room at the last meal that Jesus would have with his disciples during the night before he was crucified. Jesus speaks there with his men generally and then gauges with them in a few uh, back and forths, a few dialogues. To Judas, you remember, he said, what you do, do quickly. And then to Peter, after Peter says, why can I not follow you right now? You remember that he says those very sobering words to Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And then to Thomas, how do we know the way? And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And now in our passage this morning, another another disciple named Philip, uh, he has an exchange with Jesus. As we looked at last time, verse 7 lays out the essential unity between the first and second persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. 
To know Jesus was to know the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. To see Jesus was to see the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Scripture explains Jesus' words here about the unity of the Father and the Son in passages like what we find in, well, there are a lot of passages, but what we find in Hebrews chapter 1. You remember this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And then we have this from Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And so the teaching of the church has been that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and being a person of the Trinity is, by necessity, being the same substance as the other two persons, and therefore equal in power and glory to the Father and the Holy Spirit. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, how many persons are there in the Godhead? What's the answer? Catechism class. Oh, there are three persons, fail. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, equal in power and glory. So yes, all of that rich theology was, re was revealed to us, to you, by Jesus' words here in the seventh verse of chapter 14 in John's Gospel. Jesus, by saying to Thomas, from now on you know him and have seen him, speaking of the Father, is teaching them that he is different than the prophets who merely spoke on behalf of God. He is teaching them that they needn't look under rocks and climb mountains, or look within and get a good vibe on from some artistic experience to find a batch of the, you know, or find it. Honestly, it keeps coming to mind, but he keeps pushing them. Find a batch of those shrooms that Joe Rogan keeps pushing. You don't need those things in order to know and see God. He's telling his disciples that they have known God because they have looked upon the incarnate second person of the Godhead and to know him is to know his Father in heaven because they are the same in substance. So many think that Christianity teaches merely, you know, an ethic of human behavior. And they hate it because they think that's what it teaches. But it is fundamentally about God's lordship. He rules over all. And then his covenantal relationship to his beloved creation, man. That covenantal love, that covenantal relationship. The scripture is the record of God revealing himself to man just before and after sin caused man to be blind and hard-hearted and deaf and corrupt and unfeeling and darkened and hostile in mind toward the one who made him. There were prophets 
right, who through the ages spoke of God and his authority over his creation, his ultimate lordship. Then God sent his son to speak to us directly, to take on the likeness of sinful flesh and to live among us, to then do the work of redeeming helpless creatures who were, were bumping about in the darkness of their corruption. He was and is the way and the truth and the life. He was and is the image of the invisible God. To see him is to see divine authority. Right? The Old Testament teaches us that God is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord is the teaching of the New Testament. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God Almighty, Lord of all. But, perhaps, you're like Philip. Perhaps you're like Philip. Jesus had to explain to him over the course, I mean, he had explained to him over the course of three years who he was and what his names were and how he related to his father and how he was one with the father. Three years, Philip had heard those sermons, heard that message. And Philip had just heard the sermon again. And yet Philip obtusely says, Lord, show us the Father, show us the Father. It's almost like he's angry. Show us the Father and it's enough for us. Perhaps you've read the scriptures and you've come away from them saying, I need a sign. I'll never believe unless I see a sign. And then I'll believe. Maybe. Perhaps you've had experiences that you think are a sight of the divine. And you've come away from them saying, I need more of that. And then I'll be able to believe. And perhaps, you know, perhaps you've delighted in what your brain can conceive. You like your thoughts. You're enamored with what, what you can come up with up there. You're smart. You know, you rest satisfied in your own perceptions and everything is just a matter of cool reason without the weakness of believing in something that can't be seen. Pfft. What a joke. Perhaps you've had all manner of experiences and thoughts in your life and yet at the end of the day you just can't believe unless there's more, more clarity, more knowledge, more signs more wisdom, well, you're living in Philip's head, one of Jesus' disciples. Philip had been sitting at Jesus' feet, think of it. He had heard all the sermons just like Judas had heard all the sermons. He had seen all the interactions that Jesus had had. He had, he had um, heard of still more interactions that aren't even written in Scripture which if all those situations were written down, John tells us, even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. He had seen miracles. He had probably performed miracles. The demons had been subject to his name or to Jesus' name. He had witnessed the, those continuous battles with the Pharisees and the arguments that Jesus had with the chief priests. He had seen um, Jesus' compassion 
for those who were dispirited, those who were like sheep without a shepherd. He had seen him love the loveless. He had seen him act as a friend to the friendless. And here, just after Jesus tells him that he has seen the Father because he has seen Jesus, he asks a question that shows his lack of either understanding or his complete lack of faith. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough. Philip is missing the obvious. He is not seeing what is before him, which is just like us, isn't it? We so often just don't see what's right before us. And Calvin writes, we profess to be earnest in seeking God, and when he presents himself right before our eyes, we go blind. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we uh, think we have sight, and then God is, is right in front of us, and then, then we go blind? How does that happen? Well, we pray for healing, and when someone gets better after illness, we explain it by speaking solely of the way in which that disease was treated by medical professionals. We just, we refuse to see it as the act of God in his providence. We, we set God's divine lordship aside for a materialistic explanation. We see some miraculous new technology come along and we speak of it as a triumph of human intellect. Right? We set God's divine lordship aside for a humanistic explanation, even of technology. Right? We fall in love. We fall in love. Oh, it's so great. And explain it in terms of human psychology and not a feature of being created in the image of God who is love. We set God's divine lordship aside and make endorphins and chemical reactions in the brain our true Lord. We long in our hearts for the permanent. Everyone I've ever known longs in their heart for the permanent and think they have found it in a neural network that will eventually be able to download and maintain your consciousness. We set God's divine lordship aside and make technology our savior. Right? We experience incredible heights and depths of joy and sadness and explain our sufferings and joys without reference to, the, to our Father's covenantal love. We face death and explain it in engineering terms and the flaws and inefficiencies of the human cell. We set God's divine lordship aside and refuse to acknowledge that death is the wages of sin. We say we are seeking God, but when he presents himself before our eyes in all those ways I just mentioned, right, as with Philip, as with, as, as with us in the word of God and today in the preaching of the word, we choose a materialistic explanation and simply reject the supernatural. We trust our TikTok gurus and university prophets and prophetesses more than we do the Word of God. And perhaps 
you equate the two. And that is precisely what Philip was doing to Jesus that day, the day before Jesus would be crucified. He wanted to see the Father, not hear Jesus talk about his unity with the Father. He wanted visual proof. He did not want to exercise his faith. He did not want to have to take Jesus' words as more authoritative than what his eyes could see. Right? That was his authority. Show me. Remember what Jesus said later to Thomas, recorded in chapter 20. Another interaction with one of these, uh, one of the eleven. Thomas had been away when Jesus appeared to a group of the disciples, which, man, if you miss that, it's like, oh. I mean, it, it stinks when you, you miss an appointment, but imagine missing Jesus having a meeting with the disciples after his resurrection. Well, Thomas isn't there, and the disciples tell Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my fingers into the place of the nails, and dip my hand into his side, I will not believe. So eight days later, Jesus came to where the disciples were, and this time Thomas is with them, and Jesus saunters up to Thomas and looks him in the eyes and says, reach your finger here, see my hands, and reach your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. And then Thomas makes his great confession, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And then do you remember what Jesus says to him and rebukes him harshly? Because you have seen me, have you believed? He just lobs that out there as a question. And it, you can read it as, as not necessarily the rebuke, but that's how I read it. Have you believed in me because you've seen me? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. I can see Philip in the background shaking his head, pointing at Jesus and saying what he said, you know, what he said because of what he experienced on the night in, in which Jesus was betrayed. Here's what, he, he, I want to read to you what J.C. Ryle says on that John 20 passage and, and the interaction with Thomas. It's helpful. Here's what Ryle says. The principle contained in the sentence before us is one of vast importance in every age, and especially in our own. In a day of skepticism, free inquiry, and rationalism, so-called, when hundreds are continually railing against creeds and dogmatism and priestcraft, the sentence deserves close attention and consideration. Nothing is more common nowadays than to hear people say that they quote, decline to believe things that above their reason, that they cannot believe what they cannot entirely understand in religion, that they must see everything clearly before they can believe, unquote. Such talk as this sounds very fine, 
and is very taking with young persons and superficially educated people because it, apply, because it supplies a convenient reason for neglecting religion altogether. But it is a style of talking which shows a mind either proud or foolish or inconsistent. In matters of science, what sensible man does not know that we must begin by believing much which we do not understand? Taking many positions on trust and accepting many things on the testimony of others. Even in the most exact science, the scholar must begin with axioms and postulates. Faith and trust in our teachers is the very first condition of acquiring knowledge. He that begins his studies by saying, I shall not believe anything which I do not see clearly demonstrated from the very first will make little progress in science. In the daily business of life, what sensible man does not know that we can take many important steps on no other ground than the testimony of others? Parents send sons to Australia, New Zealand, China, and India without ever having seen these countries in faith that the report about them is dependable and true. Probability, in fact, is the only guide of most parts of our life. Again, Ryle continuing. In the face of such facts as these, where is the common sense of saying, as many rationalists and skeptics now do, that in such a mysterious matter as the concern of our souls, we ought to believe nothing that we do not see? and not to receive nothing as true which will not admit of mathematical demonstration. Christianity does not at all refuse to appeal to our intellects and does not require of us a blind, unreasoning faith. But Christianity does ask us to begin by believing many things that are above our reason and promises that so beginning we shall have more light and see all things clearly. The would-be wise man of modern times says, I dislike a religion which contains any mystery. I must first see and then I will believe. Christianity replies, you can't avoid mystery unless you go out of the world. You are only asked to do with religion what you are always doing with science. You must first believe and then you will see. The cry of the modern skeptic is, if I could see, I would believe. The answer of the Christian ought to be, if you would only believe and humbly ask for divine teaching, you would soon see. So now then, back to Jesus' response to Philip. To Philip's request which was to see the Father in a way other than seeing him in, th in and through the Son. Jesus says, have I been with you? Have I been so long with you? I mean, start a sentence like that and you know it's getting intense. Have I, I mean, it's just like, he's like, have I been with you so long and you still don't get it? What is wrong with you people? Quote, R.C. Sproul. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? And that is the correct conclusion. When you refuse to put your faith in Jesus Christ with the testimonies that have been passed down through the ages and come directly to you, you prove you do not know Jesus, and not knowing him, you do not 
want to know him. You will cast about for some explanation of life and being in the material and, you know, it being in the material and the evolutionary and the accidental and the psychological, but more, most certainly not in the supernatural. You'll look at the mass of humanity going the same way and conclude that we who are on the broad road can't be wrong. You'll belittle the the simple, supposedly unintellectual faith of your parents or your grandmother. And the only thing that would convince you otherwise is if God appeared before you, say, in a burning bush. But even that would be a stretch for you. Have I been with you so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? What does he say? Do you not what? Do you not believe? In other words, there are some who see with the eyes and some who see with the eyes of faith. Right? There are some who only accept the testimony of light hitting the photoreceptors in their retinas. (laughs) What a a weak thing. There are others who see because of the testimony of God's word and they have working eyes of faith, right? The inward man. Think of the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who came to faith when when he physically saw the Lord as he traveled on the road to Damascus, he saw a bright light from heaven, brighter than the sun, and you may say to yourself, well, if Jesus came to me in that way, well, then I would believe. Bam! He's before me. After his conversion, the Apostle Paul would often told his conversion story, right? Three times it's recorded in the book of Acts. One time he did so before King Agrippa. He told of his experience and also shared what Jesus said to him. And those words relate to what I've been saying in this sermon. After the blinding light of Jesus, Jesus said to Paul this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to to open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith. In me. So, yes, the Apostle Paul got to see things with his eyes. But he did not get to record it on a video and then show that to others to convince them to believe. He would speak about what happened to him, and the result would be what? Opening of eyes. He was being sent to Jews and Gentiles in order to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, being sanctified by 
faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And so why, dear friends, will you go on seeking for a sign? When God gave you a mother who held you on her knee and spoke to you about the glory of God and the endless vistas of heaven. Why will you go on seeking for the stimulation of your synapses when God has brought you to hear his word about his son's death for your eternal life? Why will you go on traveling about the world to see God's creation and cut yourself short of seeing and hearing the testimony that those mountains and hills and rivers and waves give to God's power? Why will you go on obeying your physical eyes and making sure to never crack open the eyes of your faith? Why will you accept the testimony of a thousand witnesses that have mixed motives and very little credibility, but you will not accept the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's not that you accept only credible sources. You do not. I mean, it may be that you believe what you read on Facebook and the internet, and you pass it on to others as if it's the gospel truth. You know, I read this the other day, and, and now it's your gospel, it's your new message. And yet, Jesus speaks, and you fight with it all day long. I won't believe that. But random dude on Facebook, fine. And now I have a message. You know, get the vaccine. Don't get the vaccine. Jesus speaks in and through the word and you fight it, you resist it, you suppress it, you hold it down, you hold it back. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. In other words, in the words of Jesus, you have the words of the Father Almighty. Better than seeing the Father is to believe what the Father has said. And why are you casting about in this world, willing to consider the testimony of everyone based on their limited knowledge, but you are unwilling to consider the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ? Afraid his word may make a demand of you, right, and kill your buzz? Some of you just don't want to give up your buzz. You're just unwilling to give up your vibe. Well, that's absurd. Right? You might find that after you are rescued from eternal damnation by someone, you will delight to obey the someone who did the rescuing. Right? His commands are not a burden. His yoke is easy. Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Which is a huge concession he makes here, right? He's been saying, believe the words, believe the words. But if you won't believe the words, believe the works. Calvin summarizes his statement. He says, 
Jesus is saying, if my assertion does not produce conviction, and if you have so mean an opinion of me that you do not think that you ought to believe my words, consider at least that power which is a visible image of the presence of God. You've seen things, right? You've seen the works. But what of us? What of us? We haven't seen those things that the apostles saw. We have not seen any of Jesus' miracles, so we think. But that is precisely what I'm disputing, right? Yes, we were not there when Jesus raised the widow of Nain, the widow of Nain's son from the dead. We did not see him apply that that uh, spit salve to the blind man's eyes. And yet all of life is filled with the miracles of God. If you have eyes of faith opened by the Holy Spirit. The recovery from an infection is a blessing of God's kindness to us. Right? Our hearts swell with love for another person, and that is a reflection of God's Trinitarian love. Technology leads to peace and prosperity of many, believer and unbeliever alike, and it is God making His blessings fall on all men. The child is knit together in his mother's womb by God's hand, and no one even knows how the bones are formed in the womb of a woman. And so there's no other explanation than it is the activity of God who makes all things. Not only are you surrounded by God's word in the scripture, but you are surrounded, you are surrounded by God's works. This day you have seen the works of God everywhere. And so you, dear friend, are surrounded by constant testimonies to his existence, to his power, and to his glory. When will you honor him and give him thanks? When will you abandon futile speculations and come out of the dark and into his light? When will you stop going after that which is corruptible and love him who is incorruptible, right? When will, you, when will you prefer wisdom to foolishness? When will you leave behind childish things? Well, dear friends, I, I pray that God would open your eyes. And, and you're, you know, some of you are thinking, why in the world is he preaching this message to his congregation? Does he think they're unbelievers? No, I, I mean, I don't think all of you are unbelievers. But Jesus told us that the church would be a mixture of wheat and tares, right? And so evangelistic sermons are appropriate in the context of the church. You know, if your pastor is not doing that, and he's just assuming everybody who comes through the doors knows Jesus Christ, he's not being a good shepherd, right? And so that's why I'm preaching this evangelistic sermon. But of course, it's for all of us because we have to be reminded of our faith, right? But I pray that God would open your eyes, that the scales of your eyes that only allow you to see a gray, colorless world would fall away and, and your spiritual eyes would, would, would you know, hit 
be opened and, and the brightness of the light would cause you to squint because it's so bright, but then you'd, you know, that illumination that comes by the light of the world, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself would fill your eyes. Fill your eyes. He is Lord. He rules over this world and is constantly at work in this world. He rules over you now. Ask Him to supply you with faith to believe that Christ is in the Father and the Father is in Christ because faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We just, perfect lineup of that passage. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Pray that the remainder of your life may be the kind of life the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians. This is where I'll close. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. That God would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. If you know Christ, you're filled up with all the fullness of God. Amen? If you don't know Christ, you're in darkness. Ask ask Christ to reveal himself to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we glorify your name. What an incredible thing that we can look into the pages of your inspired word, which is breathed out from your mouth, and we can see Jesus Christ. And in seeing and knowing him, we see and know you. And Father, I pray, I pray that we, that all who are here this day would have Eyes of faith. Some that their eyes of faith would open even at this instant. And they would be able to see beyond the material. That they would be able to see in the material, Father, your work. That they would be given eyes of faith to understand and to know who Jesus is. And Father, I pray that, I pray that we would ever ever gaze at your Son and worship Him and and increase in our knowledge of Him. I pray that, that knowing this stability, we would find everything that's permanent, that our, that our, our souls would not be battered about in this, this fallen world, but that we would have, that we would stand firm in the faith. Father, we, we need your help. 
There are temptations around us. There are things that seduce us away from truth. There are things that give the appearance of truth. Satan comes along as an angel of light and seeks to knock us off the path. And so, Father, I pray that when temptation comes, that you would you would give us the grace to follow the way of escape that you have provided. Pray that you would be pleased with our thoughts and meditations. Pray that we would be have uh, peace in our meditations. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for so how often we think that this world is not yours. That it's something else's or someone else's or it's for the rich or it's for the smart or it is owned by, by those who um, make a God of it. But Father, this is your world and this creation is yours in which you have put us and you have blessed us and you have rescued us even when we corrupted everything. God, we are very thankful for you. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his accession. And we do, Father, all long to be at rest in an eternal Sabbath, ever gazing upon your glory. Father, I pray that, that those who do not know you this morning would come to know you. And we would all rejoice together when we are brought home. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.